Well, as we begin a series of studies on Mark's account of Jesus' arrest and trials and ultimately death by crucifixion, it might appear that he is the victim of the peace, led by powerful forces greater than himself. Yet appearances are deceptive. It becomes clear to us when we see Jesus standing before the Sanhedrin, Israel's national court, in verses 53 onwards. Many false witnesses come forward to accuse Jesus of a variety of things, mostly focusing on his claim that he would destroy the temple and raise another one in three days. But none of these false witnesses can agree. But they've all been put there because there is an intent with regard to this trial, because it is actually no trial at all. The religious authorities have determined to put Jesus to death, and to death he will go. And Jesus, up to this point, is silent. He says nothing. There's no attempt to control the narrative whatsoever. Until the high priest asks Jesus about his identity, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus' reply shows us who is truly in control, and he turns the trial on its head. His reply in verse 62 seals his death but is actually his way to victory and eternal rule over all things to this present day in which we live. Let's hear verse 62, and let's not forget it as I continue to teach you the word. I am, says Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. Jesus is on his way to the cross, but he's on his way to victory. The decision to kill him that they take does not destroy him, but places him on the throne of the universe. The Son of Man reference here is to be found in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. It is a vision that Daniel has before God of actually the Lord Jesus. Let me just read that to you. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, God himself, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so he sat down in his finished victory. That's a reference to Psalm 110, verse 1. Here is his ascension, guaranteeing that he will return to judge in perfect justice the entire human race. It appears that everyone is doing the leading, and Jesus is doing the following, but 
I say to you, that could not be further from the truth. He may present himself as a weak victim, but he is not. And the power play that we're going to see from humanity in various ways does not overthrow Jesus. It just helps him to his throne where he reigns today over all things. Jesus is in control all the way to the cross and beyond. Five things to say. I'll keep them moving. Don't want to worry anybody. Number one, the pretended follower who looks so strong. The pretended follower who looks so strong. We pick up the story in verse 43 where in this garden of Gethsemane, this orchard, uh, olive grove, um, Judas, one of the 12 followers of Jesus, now leads a group of soldiers with swords and clubs from the chief priests and scribes and elders. He has agreed to betray Jesus in private, and the sign is that the man that I kiss sees him. And that's what occurs. One of the 12, but he wasn't one of the 12. He leads a powerful military and cultural force to arrest Jesus. But the power is worse than that because here is Judas pretending to love Jesus. He gives him a kiss of affection. He calls him teacher. But let us be clear that Judas, disturbingly, was no genuine follower of Jesus at all. This confident and intimate betrayal is saying something like this. Jesus, you were never my Lord. You never had any rule over me. You never changed my heart. And what is the evidence of that? Jesus is standing with this group of soldiers who will lead Jesus away to be crucified. And Judas is saying, that's my place the pretense was over. The truth was out. Now we need to take the warnings of Scripture seriously. And they ought to disturb us in good ways. How do warnings work? Well, warnings work so that you stay away from what you're being warned about. And you move in the opposite direction. My dad warned me not to go to the disused underground railway on my bike or any other thing to stay completely away but I'm a rebel and I'm a boy and I'm going my, with my friends and my bike all the way over to the disused railway and as I'm coming down the very steep track I go over the edge on the bike doing spectacular flips I should have been in the Olympics, really. And I crash with a bloody mess all over me and a bike utterly ruined. That's how you deal with warnings. You stay as far away as possible and you go towards that which you're being encouraged to do for your safety. 
the pretend follower who looks so strong. But let's not forget verse 62. Because the pretend follower is helping Jesus to his throne. Number two, the strong defender who looks so strong. This, I think it's verse 47. Suddenly there is one of the people in the garden who seizes a sword and therefore I so suppose is trying to seize control. We know it's Peter from other parts of the Bible. He's the Will Smith of the garden here, isn't he? And the posture is, come on, I'll take you on. I'll protect. I'll fight. I'll lop your right ear off. And that's what he did. He cut the right ear of the high priest's servant, Malchus, off. How was that going to win the day? How was that going to sort out the issues of our world? Jesus does not seize a sword, nor does he command an army of heavenly warriors called angels to come and destroy the universe that is seeking to put him on a cross. In fact, actually, we're told he heals the ear and only the miracle uh, of love is engaged in with regard to his enemies. He quietly and reasonably speaks that he's no rebel or and he's actually no threat whatsoever. But how can he do that? Well, Jesus is a man trusting in the script that his sovereign father has written because he says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. There's a guy with a sword, thinks he can fight his way out of it. And there's a guy saying, I'm just trusting in the scriptures. I'm, the guy, I'm, I'm with the guy with the sword. Because that seems so powerful, doesn't it? A script written by God is going to win the day? Let the scriptures be fulfilled. True leadership follows the truth to wherever it leads. And in Jesus' case, verse 62... The strong defender who looked so strong wasn't so strong as we will find out in point five. Thirdly, the naked runner and the out-of-control church, verses 51 and 52. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Um, this naked runner, why, why, why do we want to know about a naked runner? Well, the whole discipleship church in that day and that evening ran for safety, included a naked young man. It's a moment of great fear, and flight is the only way to safety. And the naked runner is probably Mark who wrote the gospel. And his humiliation is a result of following Jesus. The church is out of control. Maybe Mark includes this moment with a better understanding of Christ. For Christ will walk to the cross with single-minded focus and wholehearted embrace of the Father's will. He will be humiliated 
and he will hang in terrible naked shame on the cross. The cross will be, though, the greatest place of victory in human history. Don't forget verse 62. The church is running out of control in naked fear. And the Son of Man walks forward and is so in control that he dies naked on a cross. The abused one offers his body in sacrifice once and for all for sin and is victorious. Have you ever been humiliated because you followed Jesus? Where do you go with that? What do you do? What truth do you tell yourself? You tell yourself verse 62, don't you? That he is the son of man seated in power and coming in the clouds of heaven. That's what you tell yourself. Because that's what he told himself. The naked runner and the out of control church. And fourthly, the religious counselor that looks so invincible. Verses 53 to 65. Won't deal with too much of this because I already have. Here's the final confrontation between Jesus and the religious authorities. The religious authorities have Jesus on their own ground and they think they're fully in control. They think they're invincible. And it is within this court, this hostile court, where he has remained mostly silent, that his eternal identity is given as a gift to his enemies. Uh, do you think do you think the cultural ideology of our day is invincible? Do you think they have won? The identity issues, the gender issues. Do you think they have won? Remember verse 62. There is no culture that is invincible against the Son of Man. He reigns today. And they may spit on him, and they may blindfold him, and they may stri st strike him, and they may beat him. But he knows. And fifthly and finally, the weeping failure who loses control, verses 66 to 72. Peter has affirmed that he will be faithful to death. Peter had not grasped the cross-bearing nature of being a disciple, that you had to, had to deny yourself and rely on Jesus to be a disciple. And now as Jesus is arrested and carted off, he follows to the courtyard, but in reality... He has deserted. And his heart reveals that when he comes under the pressure of a slave girl twice saying that he belonged to Jesus and then somebody else also saying the same thing. And the three denials that he had been told he was going to 
engage with and he was going to fail in by Jesus became a reality. Isn't it interesting? Jesus didn't stop the denials and didn't stop the failure taking place. He lovingly warned him, but he didn't stop it. We're not robots. Our choices really do matter. Well, the cock eventually crows twice, and we're told in the last verse, he broke down and wept bitterly. I suppose if we were observing Peter in our day, we may wonder why he was weeping bitterly. Did he have a mental health issue? Was, was there some big emotional problems in his life that he needed counseling on? I'm not dismissing these things. It's not the reason why he wept. Let's be absolutely clear. Peter wept because he had an awakened guilty conscience that he had deserted the Lord. Christ, in his situation, will faithfully follow the Father's will and not desert the work of salvation. He will completely and successfully fulfill it, as we know, because of verse 62. And Jesus, in all of that, becomes the Savior of all sinful failures who weep in guilt. And I need to hear that because I know that this week I have had moments where I have disowned the Lord in my heart and I have seized the Lordship control of my life because I didn't want to do what he said. And I have known what it is to weep within myself as my conscience was awakened. How could you do that to me, Morris? And here is the greatest distress that I think any human being can ever have. And yet, we find it answered in the Lord Jesus. So John chapter 21, very briefly as I finish, we are on the last stretch. Because this is not the end of the story, Peter weeping bitterly. John chapter 21, after Jesus has risen from the dead, having died on the cross, he assembles some of his disciples in Galilee, the original place of call, and gives them breakfast on a beach, and then has a one-to-one -one with Peter on the beach. And we see the Lord Jesus dealing with a man who is a guilty, sinful failure. Jesus gives him a way out. Jesus gives him a way forward. And Jesus gives him a way in. The pastoral encounter starts with the most threatening and yet the most comforting of questions. It comes in verse 15, for example. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And that question is put three times. And on three times he is healed by the assertion, feed my sheep or feed my lambs. Notice what Jesus does not say. This is really important. 
Simon, son of John, did you disown me as I predicted? That's how I would have put it. Ah, get in with the guilt. That's it. Screw the knife in. Let them feel the pain. Maybe you're not like me. Well, good. His denials are assumed. But you see, if Jesus had gone down that road, it could have led to self-justification. Well, at least I tried to follow you. I didn't just run like the rest of them naked away. I got to the courtyard. Or it could have produced excessive guilt that would have defined him as a total failure for the rest of his life. So my maths teacher told me, Kinnaird, you are absolutely useless at maths. It defined me for the rest of my life with regard to maths. Or maybe Peter would have been tempted to self-atone. I've got to go and do some stuff now, haven't I? I've got to make up for this failure. Self-atone. But none of that happens here. The pain of confession is there. It grieved him the third time that the Lord had said this question to him. But I want you to see the brilliance and the beauty of it. He's not asked. Did he deny the Lord three times? What is he asked? Simon, son of John, do you love me? We can confess sin and it still defines us. We can confess sin and we hold on to it anyway. But when you turn to the faithful one, the Lord Jesus, we discover it is more than confession. We are faced with his unlimited love that frees us to confess our failure and the pain of it. And we place our hands into his pierced, our lives into his pierced hands. And we walk on. There's a way out here to Peter. Guilty failure is actually being confessed. He's not being asked to deny the reality of that. The way out is being given. The way on is also being given. Do you notice that? He's given a whole life of serving Jesus, even to his death. And there's a way in. And what is the way in? The way in is this. He discovers the unlimited love of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus that will not walk out on Peter. Why? Because of verse 62. John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, poses the question, in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? I'd like to build on that a little bit. In the real world of painful guilt, in failing to own Jesus as our Lord at times, how can one withhold the guilt from the one who loved us and gave himself for us, and he says to us, do you love me? To this guilty man this morning, 
I'm talking to myself now, in all authentic reality, to this guilty man who stands before you, who has disowned Jesus as Lord in my heart, probably on almost a daily basis this week, Christ, who is the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven, says, Morris, son of Carson, do you love me? Isn't that just a brilliant and a beautiful way of dealing with guilt? The Lord Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man, loved us and gave himself for us. A way out from our guilt. A way forward to continue to serve Christ in our lives for the rest of our days. And a way in. Not to lifestyle, but to know that his love is always for us and he's never against us because of verse 62. Let us pray. Take a moment, please. You're not responding to me. Responding to the Lord Jesus. Don't be a pretend follower. Let the warning take you to Christ. Don't pretend to be a strong defender as if he needs your love and protection. He doesn't. Don't be a naked runner, metaphorically. Don't think your culture's invincible. And if you're a weeping failure of guilt, walk towards him. Do you love me? We have never seen you, Lord Jesus. And yet we love you. We have never seen you and don't see you now, but we believe in you because of the the word that you have given us. We believe that not only did you die on a cross for our sins and rise again from the, from the dead and live now in victory, but you are indeed at the right hand of the Father and you reign with great power on our behalf to meet all our needs. And one day you will return in a moment of universal eternal justice and you will deal with all wrong. The powerful forces of humanity are not powerful at all. They're weak plays because your testimony to us this morning proves it. And so, Lord, help us to stay close there and help us to keep one another close there. In Jesus' name.